You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Where are you coming to me from today? Uh, my my truck, Bracken. I'm in my truck. You got a good look going. Why do you say that? You've got the the sunglasses on, big beard. You're sitting in a in a truck with headphones on, staring into your computer. You know, for anybody driving by or walking by, I gotta look like like I'm in some sort of in, incognito police mode. I'm in surveillance here, undercover. You might solve something today. You know how I know that our lives are shit shows right now, Bracken, is normally we have uh, like very clever usernames. I've referenced our usernames very often. Today is the first time that we don't. Which we means... both just have letters that we hit with our randomly with our fingers so we can get into the meeting. Yeah, not clever of us at all. So if my audio is a little off, I'm on a laptop in my truck. I tried to do it without um, the air conditioning running. But that's not going to work today because it's hot. So I have the car running. So if there's some background noise, sorry about that, folks. You've had a, a wild week just in terms of life stress. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a run, man. Every time I talk to you, you're in a different place. None of it's your house. You still yeah. don't have internet run to your place. Nope. Tomorrow, though, tomorrow the internet comes and I get some living room furniture in. So things are looking up, Bracken. That is looking up. Uh-huh. So, and yes, and so we'll address, so you, you actually made a post Bracken last week. We missed our Friday episode. Yeah. Totally on me. I was a little bit under the weather, but I'm, I'm back in action now. So, so we're good to go. Are you any, any worse for the wear or did it take a toll on you? Well, I had three days, man. I had, I don't know. There's something going around, but I, um, I was out of commission. I had some sort of like, uh, Delta I, variant. No, it was like I had some internal bleeding going on in my GI tract. So I started going to the bathroom and it was as black as night. And that is a sign of internal bleeding. And it started to hit me out of nowhere. So for like three days, I felt like I got kicked in the gut. I was like dizzy, sweating, nauseous, and stuff was coming out of me that shouldn't come out of anybody. So I was out for the count. Bracken and I were supposed to record with our guests on Wednesday last week. And I just sent you a text. and was like, there is not a chance. So... But three days of that. And then ironically enough, an athlete of mine uh, sent me a message and said, hey, I've been in the hospital for like three days with internal bleeding, like out of nowhere. I've been super sick. And apparently there's some virus going around that can just nab your your GI system. So that made me feel a little better. So I didn't go into the hospital and I just kind of toughed it out at home or in the hotel, which is even worse. But that's that was my week, man. That's rough. It's no fun. No, no. You had a better week, though. You um. You had a little 10-year spicy anniversary, didn't you, to celebrate? Yeah, but it didn't get celebrated. Why? We had a pre-existing family uh, camping trip out in the boonies. So we went out with, with Lisa's family, and we camped, and all three kids got sick. Oh, no. And uh, I've been home now for 15 minutes. <laughs> 
but we got to we're pulling it together for the good people of the running public. Yes, we are. You know what? People talk about unplugging and getting away and Mm -hmm. how it's such a great thing. It was stressful for me. How come? Because we had no service whatsoever. And so I had to drive into town to send a text or receive a text or make a call. And I had people racing this weekend and I had, Mm -hmm. you know, just communication you'd want to be doing. And I didn't get to talk to anybody. You and I exchanged our first word on my drive home. Yeah. When you're a coach and, you know, it's all about like communication and you have race weekends and you're, and you're unplugged, not by choice. It's stressful. I've been there. And then you feel like you're not being there for your athletes like you'd want. And so that weighs on you. It's a tough deal. Yeah. And it's, we're, we're blessed to have the life we have in the occupation that we've chosen because Mm -hmm. we get to do our job from almost anywhere. The caveat being anywhere that has service. So (laughs) any other job, it's tougher to leave because you have to find people to cover you or you have to ask off or you have to use vacation days or whatever. But once you leave, generally you leave. But we have the flexibility that very few people have. But then I don't know if I ever totally unplug either. So it's just the one one of the few downsides of it. But yeah, the the weekend was actually a little bit of a an unrelaxing vacation. And we had our 10 year anniversary over the weekend that we didn't celebrate. Oh, I couldn't have I wouldn't have known. I just knew it existed. Very proud for you. You look refreshed. Do I? You do. I don't feel it. No? Well you're faking it. You're faking it till you make it. It's probably because I got some sun and I'm I've been running. So I'd probably look healthier. Do you want it? Maybe that's what it is. Do you want to know how I knew this last week was shit? And this is pun intended here. And then we're out of it. Things are, things are great again. But I finally went for, I finally was feeling better. I took two days off of running and then I went and ran on Saturday. I went back out to Afton where my trail race was last weekend. And I thought one, like, thank God I got sick after the trail race. Cause it would have been a big bummer if it was before. And then two, I went out and I actually hit those Hills. You and I hit maybe two months ago, but mm-hmm. at a casual effort, I put a long run in and got some vert. I would, Anyways, and my podcast ended that I was listening to, and I was going down that big cement, like 300-foot hill that goes down, and I was cooking. And I took my phone out so I could change the podcast I was listening to. And it slipped out of my hands and bounced down the road and landed smack dab in the middle of a pile of dog shit. That I don't know the chances of that. I haven't dropped my phone ever on a run nor do i futz with it and it literally faced down in like a warm summer steaming pile of dog shit and i was like that is fitting for the week i've had so i'll probably wow. get sick i'll probably get sick from that now too but you didn't break your phone no phone was great it was just in poop <laughs> <laughs> well before we move on then my <laughs> yeah. brother borrowed i forgot what it was back when you had the the touchscreen ipods yeah oh yeah back when mp3 players were a thing Yep. He borrowed mine and went for a run and he put it in his pants pocket. He said, it never bounces out of here. It'll be fine. He went for a run at night. He took three steps down the alley to get started. It bounced out of his pocket, disconnected at the end of his headphone because it was back when headphones were still corded. Mm-hmm. And it bounced once on the ground, bounced up in the air and dropped down through a sewer grate. Oh, God. And we could see it down there. Light was on. <laughs> <laughs> underneath the water or whatever was down there. And then it's just slowly over the, the, the course of the evening, it died. <laughs> Taylor Swift playing for nobody down there. Yeah. So sometimes life just hands you lemons and then it 
takes those lemons and it buries it deep in a pile of, of dog poop. I'd take dog poop over uh, losing it in a, in a, in a drain. So, um, so this week, man, I, we could bullshit all day, but um, man, I've gotten so many questions and, and anticipation about the race coming up this week. I don't know about you, but we're back. Racing is, is definitely back and, and Utah is this weekend and everybody's got what a dozen last minute questions. How do I approach the race? What to expect? Um, and I thought we should dive into the topic today of race day and how to approach like a long mountain race or a long anything race, but it's very top of mind. And so I think we should dive into that today. What do you think? Yeah. yeah I think a little background for the, for the non OCR athletes that, that tune in. Uh, the the Spartan U.S. National Series picks back up for the first time since what February? Since February, five five month hiatus. Five month off. Second race of the series because others have been canceled or postponed. Picks up in Utah at a basically a ski resort, right? Of course. So yeah. you're going very steep up. You're going very steep down. But it's the, I mean, now it's probably the biggest race of the year so far. For everyone in in this sport of obstacle course racing, at least in the United States, so it's a big it's a big deal in this small world. And a lot of people who listen to this are going to be going to this race, or are going to be prepping for a very similar race later. And and so this, I don't want to lose you before we even start and say this doesn't mm-hmm. pertain to you because we're we're going to talk about it preparing for a big mountain race, particularly one at altitude. Well, yeah, and it's a little bit different, you know if. I mean, of course, you always want to show up to the start line ready to go and then execute and finish with where with exactly how you want to finish. But there's a lot more that goes into a longer, um, longer race, whether it's a mountain race or it's the Utah Spartan race or it's a general trail mountain race. The longer the race, the more like thought needs to go into it. And we got a question that came in with the intent of being like a Q&A question. And it was like, from the time your alarm goes off in the morning to the time you cross the finish line on race morning, what do you do? And I thought, you know what? I've gotten so many questions about like how to approach the week and the day and the race that it was just worth talking about. But I think we should dissect like day of, you know, in particular. For big mountain races, long races, a lot of vert, I find it to be a very physically demanding type of race. And so I get up a little earlier. Okay. How come? I, I feel more prepared the more awake I am. And that's really an obvious statement. That's not rocket science. But for a big mountain race, I just want to, I guess, give myself a little more time to eat a little. I want to get a little, a little bit more calories in me. And there's just like a, an ambiance to big mountain races and I, I like to kind of sit and stew in that in the morning. So personally, this isn't a recommendation. Just personally, I find myself waking up earlier for long mountain races than for almost any other style of race. Okay, well, let's talk specifics there. Since we are talking from the time our eyes open until the time we cross the finish line. Uh, if you have a 7.30 race time, like what time does your alarm go off at? For this type of race, probably 4.30. So you want three hours of being awake. Yeah, I probably would have been more like four back in the day, but I just need a little bit less time to digest now. I used to need three, three and a half hours of digestion before the race would start, and now I don't. So yeah, I'd, I'd get up at about 4.30. Okay. Waking up. Well, you're an old man now too, and, and you know, yeah. you got to work out the kinks. 
You really do. You really do. If it wasn't for logistics of getting to the venue and making sure you can, you know, be ready when you need to be ready. Um, I would, uh, I would say two hours is fine, but I, I usually do the two and a half. Um, the biggest thing that I find in the morning is, you know, you're trying to time your eating schedule with, uh, your race. That seems to be like the biggest thing, right? I want to eat far enough out, but you know, I feel like if it's a beast race, you want to go in in some sort of caloric saturation. So, um, that's would be why I would probably have a bigger window, not to wake up. The coffee will do that for me. Mm. It's more, it's more of that window of eating. And I actually could get away with eating closer to the race because most big mountain races start at the bottom. And the first right. thing you do is climb, which is the least jostling of your gut. And it's, it's a little bit more of a physically controlled start. And mm-hmm. so I could probably eat closer to start time, but for whatever reason, I just, I can't. Mountains give me nerves, maybe more than any other style of race, even more than short course races, which give me a lot of nerves, but mountains, like I said, the ambiance just kind of gets to me. So I get up and I eat a little earlier. Well, I think two things. I think one, uh, I always feel like if I travel to elevation, let's say I'm dried out. Like I feel dried out. Do you know that feeling I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? Especially when you come from like this Midwest uh, humidity, if you're traveling for a mountain race, I just feel dry. So uh, I keep a big thing of water next to my bed. And when I get up to pee in the middle of the night, which I always do, I'm going to take like some big pulls. And then right when I get out out of bed in the morning again, to make sure that gets in me and gets out of me in time, First thing I think of, eyes open, I'm putting down like 16 to 30 ounces of water immediately just to make sure, like, you know, when you fly and travel, you just get dry. And so I do that. And then the one thing that I've been noticing lately for long efforts is if you want to cram calories in, um, I'll roll out of bed and I will have probably two bananas within the first 15 minutes. And and the way our body works when you eat something simple like that, a simple carbohydrate, it's in and out of our, our stomach within 30 minutes from the time you put it down to the time it's already into your uh, upper intestines, 30 minutes. That's it. That is not going to be an issue on race morning. So you get up and you put an extra 200 to 300 calories of just pure fuel in your system. Get up, brush your teeth, dawdle, go to the bathroom. Then you sit down and have your meal. And that's a way to sneak in an extra two to 300 calories. That's not going to be a GI problem. I've done that for these trail races lately. Um, and I can't, I can't argue against the fact that I felt the difference. So that's where my mind would go right out of bed is water and then get something really easy in me. I don't want it. Nobody ever wants food right out of bed on race morning. The butterflies are filling your stomach, but you do it anyways. And so those would be the first thoughts, like get calories in. Those will go through me quick and just get water to make sure like I'm good. I like that. And you're right. The, the, the bigger the race, the bigger the mountain, the, the longer the race, uh, the, the more that hydration matters. I feel like yeah. I can do almost anything before a 5k because I'm not even going to need the energy that I'm eating really. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to need the water I'm drinking. You can go in under fueled and under hydrated and you're going to be just fine in a 5k. It's not ideal, but over the course of 60, 90, 120 minutes spent on a mountain, now water starts mattering. And so, yeah, getting up and starting that process earlier so you don't have to chug and get stuff down in big gulps. I, being able to, to spread that process out, that's nice. And, w- and what I like yeah. to do is because I can always drink on race morning, but it's harder for me to eat. And so I keep a calorie mix that I drink, I sip throughout the morning. 
to just try okay. to, like you said, sneak extra calories in because I get to the point where I'm going to throw up if I, if I keep eating breakfast, it's just, my stomach doesn't want it, but I can keep drinking calories down. What is in your mix? Uh, it could be in Duralite, uh, sorry, Sustainalite. It could be um, Tailwind or it could be a smoothie of some sort, but something drinkable. Have you played around with uh, any of the Scratch products? No, I have not. Me either. It's on my to-do list, though. Um, okay, you're going to say something, yep. Yeah, just so we're at altitude in this particular race, and so hydration is even more important. You don't want to overhydrate, but you don't want to come in underhydrated either because okay. even just respirating at altitude dehydrates you. So you want to make sure that you're on top of it coming in. So again, I start a little earlier and I pay more attention to it. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say like get the water in right away and you should be, we could talk all about the days leading up and the night before, but we're starting on race morning here. We've, we've actually covered some of that stuff in past episodes, but like you also don't want to sit there at the start line and have to pee really bad or be running to the porta potty. And then you're 10 minutes into your race, like, God, I have to pee already. And then you're thinking about it and can't figure it out. So like, I think find getting that out of the way right away, like has time for it to run through your system just to, just a troubleshoot. And if you are a heavy sweater, um, you know, a lot of times breakfasts aren't, uh, salty. They don't contain a lot of sodium in general. A lot of times people have easy things like, like bagels or oatmeal or cereal. For me, that's what I choose on race morning. Um, and those dry temps and stuff, if, if you're worried about retaining water, the sodium tablets or adding salt to your oatmeal or whatever you're choosing, you just want to actually retain it too. So, a lot of times like our carbohydrate, but like non-salty breakfast, don't do it as great of a job as of retaining water as let's say like salty pasta or pizza. And so I always think about the salt component too, which seems a little, little odd, but um, it's something you definitely want to think about just so you're holding on to what you're taking in. Yeah. The last, the last reason I get up earlier before a mountain race than other races is just the nature of mountain towns. Not everything is accessible the way it would be closer to a city. So I yeah. can't tell you how many times that either myself or someone that I know has had race morning issues because the gas station um, you know, at the edge of town doesn't open until 6 a.m. Or mm. that, that coffee shop, only one is open of all in the whole village and every single person is trying to get to that one or you know little things like that there's only one road in and out and the traffic takes longer parking takes longer there's things are magnified in mountain towns in my my experience i remember uh, i think novakovic and i in tahoe one year or maybe it was chad trammell i i, I forget because i've roomed with both of them out there but we're trying to get trying to get to the gas station. And it was like, he jogged down. I think Chad jogged down there one morning and it was closed. He jogged mm-hmm. back. He's like, well, I was, I was banking on that for my breakfast. So uh, I don't, I'm going to have to <laughs> wait and, and postpone. So a planning ahead of time is important, but also giving yourself extra time because it might be 20 minutes to the next town to find a gas station that's open in the morning, or it might be an extra 15 minutes at parking or at that cafe that has the coffee in the morning. Waking up an extra 20 to 30 minutes early to stave off race morning panic when you're looking at your watch and there's a freaking line to get in to register and you're like, oh my God, you're doing the math and you're like, no, I'm not going to get my warm up in and that, da, da, da. like, it's just not worth the stress. And no. I will tell you what, I made that mistake in Big Bear in 2018. I made my shitty cup of hotel coffee that they leave there for you and got in the rental vehicle, set it on top got in the car, drove off, forgot my coffee was on top and it came spilling off the side. And I was like, Oh no. 
there was nowhere for me to get, to fix that problem. So I ran into that issue and nothing was open. It was too early. Luckily I ran into somebody who had a whole thermos and I was like just a, a beggar and I, and somebody poured me a lid just so I could get my fix. Thank God save my race. But I could have been in a pinch there, Bracken. So it's a good point. Yeah. And then and the second piece to that mountain town kind of vibe that happens there is that oftentimes at a mountain race, you stay on site, which doesn't always happen at normal races. You've got a 30, 40 minute drive sometimes in the morning to get to your venue. But the venues are built around housing because of the nature of ski hills, ski resorts. So you're not doing the from the hotel to the rental car to the venue routine that a lot of the times you're used to. And you forget things. Mm-hmm. My hotel's only a 400 meter walk to the start line. I'm just going to warm up from the hotel and then head on over there. But because you're out of your routine, that's when you forget your race socks or you forget your timing chip. Because when do we ever check in and then go back to our room with our timing chip? Only at mountains. And so you're not used to that. And so you leave your timing chip on your, on the nightstand or any sort of thing like that happens. You don't have something, your ID, and you need it. And suddenly that 400 meters is a lot farther away than what you're used to. So again, just building in extra time for all the extra you know, nonsense that goes on at mountain races that you're not prepared for. It's the same thing. Take the, take the 20 minutes the night before to compulsively lay out everything, sit down, think about what you're going to need in the morning, what options you're going to wear when you step outside and you're like, Ooh, it's a little colder than I thought, or, Oh, it's warm. like, lay it all out. So it's super simple, stress-free. You're going to sleep better the night before anyways. And then you're ready for all of those things. Cause that morning panic is the worst. I mean, I've raced really well off of that adrenaline sometimes when you barely make the start line, but it's still not worth it. So, no. so you roll out of bed, okay? I'm rolling out of bed. I'm drinking my water. I'm popping some bananas down the hatch, getting up, brushing my teeth, looking at myself in the mirror, going, man, you look rough this morning. And then what are you doing after that? I start loosening up a little differently. Okay. The the steeper a race is, the more I t- it takes a toll at the beginning of a race on my rear chain. So my calves and Achilles start firing up early in a race on a climb. And by the end of it, it's hip flexors and lower back. And so I I focus on those more in the morning than I would before normal non-big mountain race. Does that make sense? Yeah. What are you doing for them? Well, my normal routine is I just go a jog and then I do my dynamic exercises and I do some strides in its race time. But None of those things addresses the first climb of the day. Right. So before I do any of that, I'm doing some of my my pigeon pose and some stuff like that to open my hips up, get my lower back stretched out a little bit, limbered up. I'm doing more lunges in my warm-up prior. And then I'm trying to find some uphill and downhill stride locations. This is from your hotel or this is after you're already in the venue? We fast forward to that. Uh, I, I do a bit of both. I go out and jog up and down a, a hill right by the hotel if I can. Otherwise, I save it till once I'm at the venue. But I start with some mobility work to get my rear chain loosened up and in, in limber. Okay. Yeah, you are turning into an old man. Yeah, I really am, Kirk. Just listen to you over there. I uh, check in the weather to see if your joints are going to ache. Oh, they're always going to ache. I don't have to check the weather. Song and dance? Oh, you know, that's where you're at. Yeah, <laughs> weather doesn't matter. They're always aching. I see. I shortcut that process. Um, so we're getting up, doing the food thing, brushing teeth. 
I'm putting on an extra layer or two and I'm actually kind of warm and uncomfortable in my hotel room. I do that. It's like my way to warm up without moving my body. So I typically will leave my hotel room hot, but, but I think it's important um, after you get up and you kind of get your bearings and you're already nervous, you know, and all that, just remember like what needs to be done. Like it's easy to just kind of pace in your room or push off like eating cause you don't want it and all of those things, but just like keep your timeline like it's very important to do that. So I'll get up and do all those things. And then I will sit down and have my breakfast. And I'm going to, I put on chill music in the morning. Like I don't turn the TV on. I put on something to keep me relaxed. Um, you can, you're, when you walk into the venue or the race, that's going to be enough energy to pump you up. You don't need Skrillex blaring at you while you're eating your Fruit Loops. Like I just don't think you do. I think save it. That's just my opinion. Maybe you're different. Rick no. Ross, you just need him right away. But I always tell myself, not yet, not yet. Save it, save it. Like as soon as those little shots of of adrenaline and chemicals start pulsing, no, 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 not yet. We'll need it later. Not yet. Exactly. And most people mix that up. Like not yet. I'll put bony Vare on and and eat my cereal, which sounds super granola in me, but that's just the way it works. You get up and do that. After that, it's time to change into your clothes to get ready. You know, you don't like to wear compression longer than you have to. I don't think it's comfortable to sit around for an hour in your hotel room. So do that and then start thinking about your pre-workout, like uh, my cup of coffee, you know, about an hour out is how you typically want to time hour, half hour out. So you start, I don't usually do it too early. I wait until I, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm on my way to the venue. It's time to caffeinate um, just so you time everything right. I don't know how many people sort that out, but it's a definite morning process that way. This is before I leave the hotel room or the Airbnb. It's all of those things. So walk outside, check the weather stay warm in the hotel room to get the muscles loose without moving. And I don't know. Yeah. I think keeping your cool is more important than pumping, pumping yourself up before you walk out and get ready to go to the venue or the race. Yeah. And I'd skipped ahead to my warm up, but I, I should note that you said something important there, which is step outside and feel the weather. Mountains create their own climate, their own mm-hmm. little environment there, and it changes rapidly. And it's not always what they say it's going to be the night before. So getting out and getting a feel for it. Sometimes 20 degrees feels balmy in the mountains. And sometimes there is a bite to that wind and you're going to need something different on the course that day, or at least for your warm up. So I think that's, you're right on that. It's important to get outside before your warm up even starts and mm-hmm. feel the weather. Yeah. And another thing too, is there's apps out there that I'm glad you brought that up is you know, at the top of the mountain can be drastically different than the bottom as well. And so I believe you can find that out on what the, like the weather is at the peaks and some of the summits. And so just something to keep in mind, like, do we have to worry about super frigid temps right now, midsummer? Probably not at at the summit of our climbs, but you never know on an off day, it could be in the thirties up there and and you might want to be prepared. So it's a good point. So this next one is not going to be a suggestion. This is just personally what I do before big mountain races. I spend less time running than usual before a big mountain race. If normally I'm going to do somewhere between 12 and 20 minutes of running, I might do half to two thirds of that. And I put that extra time into, again, dynamic movements and Mm -hmm. focusing on my range of motion and, and making sure that I'm ready to have certain areas of my body take a real big pounding going down the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make in the room, let's say we're in the venue now and I've given the speech to the listeners before about like, don't be that idiot out there in your compression shirt, your t-shirt and your little shorts freezing your butt off because mornings can be cold. Like make sure you have enough clothes. You can always take clothes off. You can't put them on if you don't have them. That whole spiel. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
is not really getting ready for the terrain itself in their warm up. People jog back and forth in the flat part of the festival area. They they stay on flats and then all of a sudden they go to race uphill and it's a mile climb and it's such a shock to their body and the lactate buildup happens instantly. The best way to buffer lactate is to create a little to start with, open that pathway. Mm-hmm. And so I think like I got to find where I can get to start getting a little vert in my warm up to just get those systems going. So part of what you had said is you found some hills for uphill strides. If we're talking mountain racing, I'm looking for somewhere where I can actually start to get a little elevation and get that system working, which is also going to loosen up all those things that you were talking about with the Achilles and the calves and all of that. So that's like where my brain goes first once I begin my warm up in a mountain race. Yeah, I like that. And I spend more time in my race shoes before a mountain race than I do for other races. And that's because in other terrains, if your shoes stretch a bit during the race or the laces loosen a little bit, if they get wet or sweaty or just, you know, how shoes tend to do that. You lace them up, it's nice and snug. And then after a while of moving around in them, they're not quite as snug. It's generally fine. But mm-hmm. when I'm going down a mountain, I just want my feet locked down. And when you're going up the mountain to start in big mountain races, you can spend 30 or 40 minutes going uphill before you ever go down. And all of that is pressure straining against the front of your, the tongue of your shoe, the the laces, the whole, everything is getting a lot of pressure right on it. You turn to go down and it's just not as snug as it was. So I spend more time in my shoes prior to the race and I retighten them down several times throughout my warm up. That's a great, great point. I get as much of that stretching out of the way as I can prior to the race. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than, uh, I wore a pair of, uh, ultras at big bear the last year we ran there because mm. I had a foot issue and, and I wish I would have done that because you climb just fine and you know that, Hey, that you can climb in loose shoes. That's fine. And, and, and ultras, you know, run wide. And so I turned to go downhill and I might as well have been running with soup in my shoes. Right. Cause it, <laughs> was, it was worthless. So yeah, get up and down and then retighten those babies. Cause there's one, there's one way to slow you down from running fast downhill. And that's if your shoes are sloppy and loose. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is one that I don't think a lot of people do and people might say, now you're just being overboard about it. But if I'm going to encounter water on course, I wet my laces prior. Now in a big mountain race, I don't want my feet freezing. So I'll do it as minimally as possible. But again, when they get wet, they stretch. And so if I'm going to hit water anyways on course and my shoes are going to stretch, I do it in advance. Mm -hmm. So even, even something like Tahoe, where it's cold, I wet my laces down before the race because I'm going to come out of the swim and I'm going to have to descend with numb feet. And the last thing I want is my feet slipping around in there. You, you wet your laces or like the whole top of your shoe? It depends on the shoe. Uh, with, for example, VJ, all I would have to do is wet the laces because that upper material of, of what we've used, it's not moving a whole lot. But mm-hmm. uh, before I did the ultra, I wet down the top of my shoe as well because I had hokas on and they have that matrix upper that's pretty, pretty stretchy to begin with. And it stretches more when it's, when it's wet. So I, I wet the entire thing down and I just had damp, cold feet to start the race. But to me, it was worth it. Okay. Um, and now we're walking in the venue. We're there. We're thinking about our warm up, all that. How are you trying to time your warm up? Let's say, um, you are, you're going to hit your warm up wherever. When do you want to be done with that and sort of ready to Ready to like head towards the start area. What is your timeline on that? Mine is less of timing it correctly and it's more of lengthening it appropriately when I race a big mountain race because at altitude, 
I get so revved up so quickly that I can't do my normal warm-up routine back to back to back to back to back movements like that because I just my heart rate starts rising. I get out of breath already and I just don't want those demons rattling around in my skull. And so I stretch things out. You start earlier. I start earlier and I don't do that back and forth kind of high tempo warm up because I don't want to start burning matches already. At altitude, it's so easy to tip over on accident that I try to not even even get near that during my warm up. So like my strides, for example, usually I would do a stride, jog back down, do another stride at altitude. I do a stride down and I'll turn and I'll walk back and then I'll do some more of my like leg swings or something to give myself total recovery before I do my next stride because sea land or at altitude, all those little pieces get you close to tipping over. Yeah. So we get to the venue, we're doing all this, we're walking through, we're done with our warm-up. We've done a warm-up and cool-down episode. Go listen to that for specific. I'm going to talk about the warm-up a little bit more, though. Okay. Because I do three to five strides before a race normally. My strides are like my my most important part of my mountain warm-up, I think, because okay. they prep me for the first climb and the first descent. So I find a gradual hill, and I do my first stride up it, walk around for a while. And then I do my first stride down it. And then I graduate to steeper and steeper. I try to do at least three grades before a race. You can't always find that. Mm. And so if all I have is steep, then I do a dainty little casual descent on my first stride down. But I try to take an actual downhill pounding, not not a big one, but a, a bit of it. And then also a hard uphill stride or three in order to be ready for the actual terrain. Right. And we've talked about it, you know, before, but uh, you don't want the gun to go off and then that first few minutes slap you across the face as far as the stimulus and effort goes. And so that's yeah. why it's important to do that stuff. You're going to feel much more settled early in the race if you uh, if you do those things. Yeah. And then, yeah, timing. We can get back to the, you asked me 10 minutes ago, how do I time it? Mm-hmm. At a mountain race, I want to be moving right up until the start. It's almost always cold in the morning. Almost always. And so yeah. I want to keep my stuff on until the last minute. I don't want to finish my final stride 15 minutes beforehand and then just sit there. If I have to sit there, I got to keep moving. And so I generally save a few of my little dynamic exercises to do at the start line. In case it's a big race and you get called up early, I want to be moving and shaking the whole time. Yeah, that's a good point. So now we're at the start line. Okay. Are you putting any fuel after you do the, the, the venue and you've done your warm up or you're getting dialed in? Are you putting any more fuel in your body um, closer to the race? What do you think for the longer race? Is that worth it? Is it not? What do you think? I think it is if you can handle it. What I've done in the past is I've taken a gel and I just shake it up in five to eight ounces of water and I I take it, I suck it down 20 minutes before the race just to kind of top it off. And and I think there's some, uh, I don't know, placebo effect to getting one in you and getting the taste of it and starting that process before you're miserable in the race. It's less jarring to me to start my fueling if I've, if my, if I've tasted it once that morning, I might be a little off compared to most people in that, but my first gel go down, it goes down easier. If it's my second gel. No, it's not no placebo effect. You're opening some, some nutrition pathways. That's right. Yeah. You could just play it off as that. (laughs) What about you? Do you take something last minute? No, because I I front load in my morning. I'm saturated, baby. I I don't want it either. So um, if I'm doing coffee, it's an hour before. And if I'm doing like a perform elite, I go back and forth on the two. I'll go half hour 
which that means I would take that sometimes before, sometimes even after my warm up, depending on, on the timing of it. But that would be it. I find it tougher for me to fuel on a mountain course than a flat course. It shouldn't be, but I, I cannot fuel downhill. I'm not relaxed enough mm-hmm. and uphills are clearly a weakness of mine. And so I, it's always hard for me to break rhythm and slow slightly to take my fuel going uphill, even though a lot of people would recommend you fuel on the uphills. So for me, it's almost painstaking to fuel on a mountain course, despite the fact that I need it more there than other places. So I do like yep. to top off last minute just to, if I end up missing a, one of my feeding windows, at least I have something. Okay. Yeah, I think it goes, you know, it varies for sure. Um, When I've experimented with it, I just haven't raced very well. And I know it's completely coincidental, you know, when you shove, you know, food down your throat last minute. But um, start gun goes off. We're in a mountain beast here. And I just want to point out um, that I believe there's one exception who's set an example on the high end of, of OCR anyways. Is that like usually the guy who is at the top of the first climb first isn't the guy who necessarily wins the race. You yeah. you see that so rarely with an exception of maybe like a Robert Killian at Worlds mm-hmm. a couple of times. Um, playing hero is a mistake in a long race. If you think you're one of the contenders and you're going to win or you're vying for a win in an age group or a podium and something, know your competition and look at their back. You have no reason to be out there setting the tone early um, because, you know, rent always comes due and it always comes due on the subsequent climbs after your first descent. So like you have to keep that in mind, even if you have that miraculous day where you're feeling like you're on top of the world in that first climb, damn it. I hope you have that day, but you have to have the wherewithal to be like, nah, nah, nah. Cause I know what happens after this. And so you don't see big mountain races one in the first climb. I think erring on the side of caution in any circumstance, this would be the one because this race, even for the top end elites, if we're talking a mountain beast or a half marathon in the mountains or anything, it's going to be a two hour effort. And that's a long time. It is. Yeah. My, my theory on how hard you're allowed to get out um, is that the less momentum you can carry on course, the less hard you get to get out. And so when you're on a flat course, I, I just experienced it this weekend. I went for uh, all the kids at the campsite, went for a bike ride with the grandparents and some of the aunts and uncles, and I decided to run with them uh, because the youngest is the two youngest that went were six. I figure I can ride a bike with six year olds. Well, they got out hot and I look down and I'm running 555 pace and we're a mile in and I'm thinking I they better tire out because I can't hold this for very long. Mm-hmm. And and, and so we're running low six pace on, on for a while, but I, and I slowed to like six fifteen and settled in, which for me and my fitness right now was way too hot for a nine mile run to start out doing that. Sure. And, but I was able to kind of use my momentum on the course. It was flat or slightly downhill for almost the entire first half. And when I get a little more tired, I could just ease off slightly and keep my pace going. But when you're going uphill, there is no momentum. Mm-hmm. When you start to slow, it's painfully obvious and you can't just like coast a little bit uphill. You earn every step uphill. And so when you cannot carry momentum, you can't get out hard yep. because then you just crash and you burn and you go slower and slower and slower. You can't just reset to a, a slightly less dramatic pace, but use your momentum. Does that momentum thing make any sense? Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Okay. You're fighting gravity so much harder. It's like, as soon as you stop exerting like, 
uh, appropriate effort, it's like a piano set on your back and yeah. it's just like, you're just, you're just bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a car and you're driving down the road and you take your foot off the gas, you're going to maintain for a bit. If you're going uphill at all, you take your foot off and you just immediately slow drastically. You just bleed out your pace so much more substantially uphill than anywhere else that I just can't, I, I can almost never, except in a one climb race, I can just almost never recommend getting out any faster really than what your sustainable climbing pace is. Yep. There was that uh, car analogy the running public all desperately waits for. <laughs> <laughs> Got it in. Now we can, now we can just. Ah, there it was. Yeah. Now we can get back to the real stuff. So my goal, especially at altitude is to have a choice during the race. I just always want to have a choice in my back pocket. You want to at least have choices to make in the first half of the race. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to the top of the first climb and think, all right, I have a choice. When we start the second climb, I want the choice to work it harder than the first or at least to the choice to try to match it. Yeah. But when your only option is not a choice, it's just all that remains is to bleed out. That's just worst case scenario. And everything's magnified at altitude, especially for a sea level type athlete. So I cannot ruin my choice on the first climb. I have to, I have to avoid tipping because if you tip early, that's it. End of the day, you don't recover at altitude. Think about this. Think about all of your athletes, Bracken. And, and I think about all my athletes and all the incline work I prescribe and the climb interval sessions and all that. There's one type of workout where you're going to see positive splits uh, almost across the board. And it's anytime vert is involved. You think yeah. you know your body. You think you know your effort. You think you go out within yourself for the first rep or two of an interval session uphill. And then by the end, you're significantly slower and working twice as hard. It's one of those tricky things that even you listening who thinks like, I'm within myself, I'm within myself, I'm within myself. And then pretty soon you find out on that second climb that, oh shit, I was not within myself. And it bites you quick. It just does. And I'm not telling you not to go out there and race and put and just race. There's, there's merit to that too, right? Like just going and sticking with who you need to stick with. But I think your time is going to end up faster if you, if you're smart early. Yeah. Oh, even look at like, um, like other than, like I said, like Killian and some of the world championships, even look at like Johnny Luna Lima's breakout races last year in the mountains. He was not leading in big bear to the top of the mountain. In fact, he was back a ways in Utah. He didn't take the lead until the very top of the mountain. He was back as far as 10th or 15th. Anybody who strategically won big races with, you know, some exceptions is still biding their time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there is real power to crusty in the hill. There's a difference between arriving to the top of the mountain and accelerating to the top. And so yep. if you if you are really concerned that you're going to lose contact early, then you just run the second half of the first climb harder than the first half. Yes. You, there is so much time to be made uphill and downhill. So much time. And if you have something in you and you realize the race is up there and I'm not in it, you can just make a move up a hill. But once yes. you've made your move, you can't make it again. Like once you're there, you're there and there's nothing left. And so you want to have that there. So I would say probably the best mountain race I ever had was um, was a national series race where I was probably in ninth place halfway up the first climb. In the top, I was in fourth. Oh, wow. But the, the people went, that went out the first half and then their first half was the same amount of time as my second half. And my second half was the same amount of time as their first. So we got to the top together. 
we got to the top in a pack, but I negative split the climb and they positive split. We did not see each other again. So even though we got, we had expended the same amount of energy, but because they had front loaded the expenditure of it, it just took their wheels off. It doesn't make logical sense. If we all expend the same amount of energy and we get there at the same time, where you expend it, what order should it matter, but it does. Let's go back to a car analogy, Bracken. What's more efficient if you slam the gas off the line at a stoplight, drag racing, and then you get settled in a mile down the road, or you just, you know, get up within reason and slowly catch that person, who's going to be more fuel efficient? The person who did it within reason, right? Yeah. And I think when you look at the match burning analogy, like how many matches do you have to burn? I feel like in flat races, you have this small matchbook of like three to six matches where you can burn strategically. And they're these small to medium sized matches. In a mountain race, you have one big ass match and you get to use it one time. That's it. You can't use it more than once. You just got one big ass match. And when you use it, that's it. That's how I feel. And so like when you use it, most people use it on their first climb without realizing it. Don't be the one to use it on your first climb without realizing it. Use it later. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not really a match, is it? It's a gear shift. Like sure. now I'm into my racing gears. You're biding your time you or you're racing. Car. You just had to bring it back to car. Ah, maybe a bicycle. Bicycle gears. Nah, you were thinking car. You were thinking car. But it's a shift. You, you go from I am, I am here to I am attacking the race. You're yes. participating and then you're attacking. In the moment you start attacking, that's the end of participating. Like you attack until you can't anymore. You can't go in and out on a mountain. It's just you push the button and now you stay with it. That's your that's the decision that you have to live with. If I had my choice and I'm thinking of, okay, my gear or my match, whatever it is, I would, if I'm lucky enough, and I say lucky because sometimes it does feel like that, just getting lucky with how you manage your effort. It would be on the second half of like the final climb is when you start to burn and you have just enough left to sink your teeth into the final descent. And then you come into the festival area completely trashed and you might have another mile of flat running left or something like that. But at that point, like who cares? Finish line is in sight and everybody feels just like you do, Sue. So that would be like a perfectly managed effort if if I could manage one. Yeah. And that brings me to the next part about how I race mountains and how, again, this isn't how should you race mountains. The question was, what do we do for big mountain races? Yes. So when you run a normal race, your legs are your legs. Yep. No matter what happens with your pace, your legs are your legs. In a mountain race, you have uphill legs, downhill legs, and flat legs. And they don't always necessarily align. You might have no uphill legs left, but you could still bomb a descent. Or your your descending legs are trashed, but if there's a last climb, you know you're going to catch people. And so what your legs are doing is not always what they're going to be doing on other terrains. Where if you go out and run a road, a half marathon, your legs are your legs. You might have a match left or you don't, but you don't get to break up the effort. I feel like there's no such thing as flat legs in a mountain race because anytime I'm forced to run flat after doing anything... Those legs are gone, brother. That's true. Those legs are gone. But but you see these people, and you're right. Maybe let's just up, call it up climbing legs and descending legs. But there are people that the way they're going up does not match how they're going down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of uh, Ryan Kempson and I um, with VJ. 
a couple of years ago in Tahoe at the World Championships. Ryan Kempson and I had run the Killington Beast, which took us over three hours two weeks prior. We turned out we weren't recovered and we were we were wearing it that day. Mm. We were taking one on the chin. And VJ was climbing with us. He wasn't having a great climbing day, but he also was being cautious. And we crested the the top and he was just gone. Mm. And I would have said, I'm going to probably finish with these guys because we're all here sitting here in the same sucky feeling. But he had some legs on him that weren't necessarily uphill legs that day. And while he didn't have a great race, he probably finished up close to 12th or 13th that day where we faded back into the 20s because all our legs were gone. He still had his descending legs and his flat legs. So we got how many two sets of legs there? Climbing legs? I I still think there's three. You get to the top of a mountain, you're above the tree line, you hit this flat ridge and you've got to run it. And some people can get back to work and other people can't. That's true. Um, I want to talk about one more thing and and I'm short on time today because we had some recording snake foods like always, but things are going to normalize here soon. And that's just the nutrition piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the nutrition piece, you know, we've talked this to death, every podcast you listen to and everybody you talk to, you talk about fueling, I get it. But in a mountain race, you know, there's not always opportune times. Brecken, you mentioned like, well, I'm not a good enough or a coherent enough descender at times to fuel. I'm running fast downhill and uphill. I'm working so hard. It's hard to even get my goo in or my fuel because I'm breathing so heavy. And so I like, you know, I'm a every half hour fueler in a long race. I think you should be too, but I give myself a five minute buffer strip on each side. And that is like, I don't think like my watch is 30 minutes and I'm like, now I think where is going to be convenient in this 10 minute window surrounding 30 minutes. And that means if it's 25 minutes and I'm like, this is a really good spot to do it. Screw it. 25 minutes in, I'm taking my nutrition. Or if I don't hit anything right away and now I'm at 32, 33, 34. And if I get all the way to 35 and there's no convenient spot yet, then I say, okay, I'm just going to take it and take the hit. But I always give myself that buffer, but I often take it early, like, you know, five minutes early because I'm like, this is the best time. Mm-hmm. I have to power hike right here and I might as well rip open my energy chews and take one or two, like something like that. So like, think about that too, because that saved me. That adds up over time. Just being smart with where you choose to take it. I like that. Mm-hmm. My last piece for is, is strategy. And that is that I believe that most people have no clue what their uphill exertion level is. We talked about it with the first climb, but in terms of flat ground running in a race, you generally know whether I could keep this or I couldn't like yeah. if I'm not keeping it, it's because I'm choosing not to up a hill up a mountain especially midway through a race it's really hard to know is this my best climbing or not right should I push harder or should I not unless you were an, a Matt Novakovich who spent years on an incline trainer learning exactly what his climbing pace is most people just aren't totally sure and so I think that one of the best ways for someone who doesn't intimately know their mountain fitness to approach a race is to do it um, with some, some mini intervals. I really love the idea of, all right, this person's got a 20 meter lead on me. Instead of chipping away at it, I'm going to take it in 10 meter bursts. I'm going to try a little extra running gear on this next climb. I'm going to do 10 strides on 10 strides off and just little fartlek work, little interval work, because you don't know if you're at max capacity or not. And those little, little test runs will show you if you have more in you. Yeah, kind of like your feathering the gas analogy, just a little bump forward, a little bump forward instead of just trying to smack it all at once. Yeah, and sometimes even just that grade, you're sitting on one grade for so long, stressing your legs, shifting your stride up gives you a little extra boost. 
just yep. a reprieve from the same motion. You use this thing on the treadmill sometimes where it's like, you know, like I know, like I either have to slow down or go faster, but like sitting here and doing the mm-hmm. same thing right now is like the most miserable feeling I've ever felt. And sometimes doing exactly that accelerating or surging a little can snap you out of it. I mean, decelerating can do the same thing, but ideally we're, we're not doing that. Um, the last thing I want to add is in these mountain races, you study in the course and you know where that last climb is. And by the time, you know, maybe you can empty the tank that last few minutes going up, as I mentioned earlier. And then that last descent is, I don't care if I live or die. Every egg is in the descent basket and I am pounding it right now. And that there's no saving. There's, if you're saving anything on that last descent, um, you're, you're strategically messing up. So that one doesn't matter. You're choosing to lose. You're choosing to fail. You're choosing not to do your best. And so that is inside out, snot on the side of your face, gasping like you're being suffocated, um, no hold bar. And, and you should be thinking that on the descent. There's no time to tiptoe there. No matter how good or bad you're feeling, gravity's going to do the work. So you might as well use your cojones along with it. That's just what I think. I fully agree. That, that woe is me feeling on the last descent where, oh, people will feel bad because look how miserable I look coming down. There's no room for that. And I've done it. It is free speed if you're willing to reach out and hurt for it. Gravity will do the work for you. You just got to let it. Um, I hate to cut this short, but uh, I wanted to make one quick announcement. And that is um, I finally have the internet back in my place. I've had like a three-week run where I've not had it, which means anybody who's ordered a shirt, I have not been able to print your shipping labels. But tomorrow, 9 to 5, sometime in there, I'm going to have internet we're going to print your shipping labels and get you your t-shirt. So, and we've had a few come in lately. So if you're waiting on it, that's why. And sorry about that, but they will be going out this week. Thank you for your patience. Do I have one? Can I say one thing? Yeah. All right. I'm going to shoot this back in about a minute, but um, I love the sim- the symbolism of downing my last bit of water and energy on the last climb. I, to me, there's like, there's something powerful too. That's the end of the energy going in. And now it's the end of it going out. I, for some, there's just like that. It's, it's a symbolic gesture. And I really, really love doing that. Yeah. I actually do that without thinking of it, but that's how it is. I said, this is it. Boom. I'm out of energy. Now let's go use it all. Yeah. And then you crush that top, your climbing legs are gone and you trash your descending legs on the way down. Yeah. And then you just figure it out from the bottom of that descent to the finish line. And it's not going to be pretty and it's not supposed to be. Nope. So that's it. This is our take on what we do before a big mountain race. Hopefully you took something out of it. (laughs) And we'll get you an interview on Friday, folks. Thanks for your patience there. Appreciate that. Crush it this weekend. Have a great week. 